FR BostonFreeRadio.com Happy Holidays, it is Guillermo, I'm the host of the Guaucast, and I'd like to thank each and every one of you. If you'd listen to a single episode of the Guaucast, I'd like to thank you. If you spread any of my episodes around, anywhere you heard it, I'd like to thank you. This has been one of the most exciting things in my life. What started as an idea to discuss cyberspace with people that I found to be fascinating, the ability to play hip-hop music on the weekends, to layer this idea was inconceivable, not because of a lack of vision, not because of our inability to see it through or to even begin or to get started or to even really qualify or clarify as to what the show is. I'd like to thank you guys just for letting us be weird, for letting the show explore its voice, for letting the show be. And because of that, it goes without saying that we have been able to complete about 18 episodes. Yes, since June 30th, which was the first date of the first episode of the Guaucast, we have now been able to complete 18 episodes. I'm effectively going to call this our first season. Now, the reason why I'm bringing this up, because we're approaching the new year, and we're approaching a whole new Guaucast. I'm going to take a brief hiatus, but don't worry. There are plenty of episodes that are coming your way to keep you interested. I can't wait to bring back the Guaucast bigger and better than ever with brand new sound as well as popping audio visualizers to broaden our reach in a bunch of television stations, online, wherever. We are looking to spread this far and wide and in 2019 it's looking that we can do so. And I'd like to thank each and every one of our listeners for helping us along the way. Each of my friends, each of my family, everyone, even if you're a stranger, thank you for helping us out at the Guaucast, and thank you for encouraging us. Stay tuned. If you are into cyberspace, if you're into hip-hop, if you're just into fascinating interviews, if you're just into the vision, subscribe to my Patreon at www.patreon.com slash gshamlin. There's a ton of goodies and it's going to be a lot of fun and I and it's going to be so you're going to have all those goodies. Those goodies are waiting for you as soon as you subscribe to my Patreon. Patreon.com slash gshamlin. Get out. And we're back. Welcome to the Guaucast. This is Guillermo Hamlin and I am here with Carlos. And Carlos, please tell me uh, what in the hell is urban computing? What is computational design? And, and, if, and if possible, can you... Please explain to us like we're five years old. Yeah, for sure. Uh, uh, thanks for the invitation. And uh, yeah, so a little bit of uh, what I do, I, uh, I'm, uh, I'm, I do research in, uh, in what, what, I, what people are, or the scholars call urban computing. 
uh, urban computing has has had like a lot of different shapes uh, throughout history. Uh, urban computing goes from the from the creation of maps, representation of the world, representations of the world to uh, more contemporary analytical predictive uh, models. So, urban computing is a set of strategies uh, to synthesize uh, information from the world and uh, an operate with it to do either policymaking, sign proposals, or even to communicate uh, ideas about the world. So in a way, it's kind of like a medium of communication, an interface between the world, the designer, the planner, and, uh, and the citizens. And of course, this medium has a number of influences, a bunch of ideas, and, uh, and a bunch of, of uh, assumptions uh, embedded in it that go from uh, from very early on uh, when instruments for urban computing were just maps to now more complex infrastructures that uh, that embed algorithmic structures, more computational power, data, etc. So these things are just data generated. Uh, it, it, I imagine because of the population cities, that must be big. You have sent, you, I, there's a diverse amount of data. Uh, you have people. We have uh, buildings. I imagine that uh, cars must be huge in terms of urban computing, in terms of the data generated, uh, in terms of how wide it is. What are these methods? What are these visualizations? Do they offer some sort of interdisciplinary benefit or is it just in urban planning, um, engineering, uh, or, or maybe just even uh, redevelopment of uh, downtown and Main Street local economy. Actually, I guess the the contemporary conception of uh, this set of tools computationally is uh, is all a bit discrete. So on one end, we have uh, what you mentioned. We have uh, data structures. We have representations of the world, which ultimately are our way of abstracting information into the computer, so it's readable uh, in a digital manner. Uh, we can cast the the closest area that has a uh, X characteristic, or which area in the city has uh, has population with uh, X or Y demographic characteristics. Uh, but that kind of uh, falls into the information management side of things. We can also use them to uh, put together proposals about how we envision the world in the future, and also uh, to represent how the world exi- exists through this uh, mediated representation. So in a way, what I think is the most valuable things of this mediated interfaces, computational interfaces, is how can we use them to engage the broader public that, uh, that is not necessarily heavily complete, uh, technologically. So how can we try make uh, decisions make uh, data structures, make policies more transparent to the people that are being uh, served or uh, or affected by this set of uh, structures, power structures, and uh, and how can the citizens also contribute to this set of knowledge and policymaking and sign of the cities and spaces that 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 uh, they live in? Thank you for breaking it down like that. It, I, I believe I think it's called your uh, uh, SM RHS thesis, uh, your Masters of architecture thesis, you propose a number of guidelines for the development of an alternative urban computing methodology. Um, what are these alternative guidelines, if you don't mind breaking that down for us? 
Yeah, so so like I mentioned uh, earlier, uh, the current conception for urban computing tools or, or tools for uh, for geospatial planning uh, is mostly as a, as a tool for for decision making, a prescriptive set of interventions that are going to have X or Y result that has been simulated or has been uh, predefined by these uh, structures. But what I what I what I think it's uh, it's most valuable of, of this computational uh, interfaces is uh, is more the capacity to engage to broader public through both a historical and computational study of the interfaces. So from uh, from their origins as uh, instruments for management of state territory, construct management and construction uh, to the first uh, uh, instances instances of digital computational uh, devices to more current approaches. And uh, and what I proposed uh, in this earlier work uh, was to create a set of guidelines. Uh, in this case, it was uh, to allow uh, these tools to serve for policymaking through uh, pedagogy, uh, informing citizens about the decisions that are taking place, about the conditions of, of the city, uh, to create civic engagement, facilitate uh, collective uh, interaction between policymakers, designers, and citizens, and for this to be open-ended, which is a key aspect here. Currently, all of these interfaces have the the nickname or or have been uh, labeled as planning decision support systems, where planners or designers uh, present a set of choices to citizens, and citizens can interact uh, with them and get X or Y results. However, uh, this mode of engagement is more like choosing from a set of options uh, that are at least completely not open-ended, they're predefined. They are they fall within a uh, a space of options. So what uh, what I'm trying to do, or what I'm trying to propose, is for these interactions to be rather uh, open to discovery and to modifications and manipulations of the citizens or the policymakers. Oh, oh, oh yeah. sorry, no, uh, my apologies. So it was like so it's like a participatory uh, uh, visualization. Yeah, yeah. So, so these visualizations are are participatory and are pedagogical. There's like a an, an iterative engagement uh, between the computational system and uh, and the people uh, working with it. Uh, then, uh, of course, uh, for this to be more or easier uh, to understand, uh, they ought to be visual first. Uh, Visual representations are ambiguous rather than uh, than other prescriptive modes of of, uh, of understanding cities. Uh, by being visual first, uh, we can also argue for transparency in, in such representations. And because they are open ended, intrinsically, uh, they are non deterministic, and they can embed contextual meanings. And then uh, the last guideline that I proposed. Uh, was for these computational interfaces to uh, to be hybrid, uh, hybrid in a way that you can combine uh, non-visual or symbolic infrastructures, symbolic uh, components are embedded in the computational interfaces, and uh, they also present representations, visual representations, and this allows an iteration and a and kind of like a, an exchange 
between computational uh, symbolic representations and visual graphic representations. So what I find to be most fascinating about all of this is the fact that it's a very uh, honest uh, assessment of the physical representation of what it is exactly trying to represent. In terms of how to really approach this, how to really go deeper into this, what do you mean by non-deterministic and open-ended? I know you delved into that in the previous answer, but for in the most simplest sense, like how does making it non-deterministic more open-ended make it more effective? Is it because of real-time activity from a wider pool of participants? Uh, is it because there's less biases from those doing the study? In, in what way does it yield better urban data? Or in this case, how does it visualize urban data better uh, for those of us who are not really keen or uh, savvy about what goes into making these? Uh... Yeah, so, so for example, uh, deterministic uh, models or computational models uh, are prescribed, so you can enumerate uh, a set of outcomes before even computing them. They're based on your assumptions, and you can compute them beforehand. Uh, so they're always going to give you the same same result. That that is uh, very very much different to uh, to an open ended transformative computational process which is very difficult to achieve, uh, at least digitally. Uh, simulations, on the other hand, can be uh, are, are still prescribed and are still deterministic uh, in some, I guess, epistemological sense, but they are shifting uh, this kind of like understanding from one single instance to a set of uh, possible instances. Whereas, uh, whereas a non-deterministic representation of the world is one that is open to interpretation and to constant recreation. What are the most common uh, outputs that one tracks? Uh, is it mostly activity within that confined ge uh, geospatial area, or is it, like what are some uses that is most uh, under understood? For the layman, yeah. So it's really like a sort of like depends and and varies uh, broadly. Uh, mostly in planning and urban design practice, uh, these tools have been used to either, as I mentioned earlier, uh, to design spaces uh, and and urban urban plans uh, to as an instrument for management of, uh, of management and evaluation of policies. So if I if I change X or Y policy, land use, etc. Uh, what sort of like outcomes might I uh, expect, both from the citizens and the, and the larger environment. And then third, they can also be used as a, as a way to communicate uh, facts or spatial conditions in an unambiguous uh, manner. Each one of this, uh, each one of this different ways of, of engaging or interaction with, with planning practices uh, has has a number of, of, uh, of ways in which it, it has been used and computational infrastructures. I know that in some of my research for this, I know that another way to really specify is with its name, its address, if there's a category, and if there's a set of geospatial coordinates. 
Now, what I want to know is what does that mean, uh, a set of geospatial coordinates? Uh, you mean, what what does it mean to create spatial ontologies? I mean, more, more I guess, philosophically, uh, what, what these systems have been used for is to classify spaces. Uh, even going back like to, the, to the his, to the history of, uh, of spatial computing uh, or early digital spatial computing, a lot of the systems originated uh, based on the on the uh, urban renewal programs, uh, which were trying to support uh, the disappearance of uh, of what people considered slums in city centers. Uh, so what, what a lot of these people or early planners or computational planners were doing was trying to classify what urban blight uh, meant. And they used these tools because it provided a non-subjective scientific classification of, uh, of urban spaces. And, uh, and this kind of like positivistic conception of urban space has to like being carried on uh, throughout the, the the development and the history of these tools, and I guess like in a way, a lot of of what Google Maps or or a search engine might be doing nowadays, and urban computing considered as a as a tool for for management of information, is uh, how do we how do we create different ontologies, and these like ontologies are are kind of like created from a broader general generalization of, uh, of information. And, uh, and I guess kind of like what's, what's fascinating about this is that, uh, even though this expected value or generalized value is supposed to be, uh, the median or what the common citizen would, uh, would expect it to be, uh, what's fascinating to me is that, uh, ultimately this makes nobody happy because, Anyone has their own conception of the world, and more technically, uh, a geospatial coordinate is just a, a Euclidean uh, point in the world that is associated with a with a spatial projection and uh, and a way of, of translating between uh, the position in the world to a to a flat plane, which is uh, how we store information uh, computationally. That's fascinating. So another thing I want to explore is how urban computing is used in, say, air quality. Uh, I live in East Somerville, and I know that we have a development uh, called Assembly Row or Assembly Square. Uh, we recently have a new orange line that was um, constructed and built along there. But in between Assembly and where I live in East Somerville, there is I-93. And I know that there has been concerns about the proximity of this interstate to residential properties and the people in those properties because it could potentially be diminishing their health. And there's a lot of, uh, you know, there's a lot of, uh, I could, uh, there's just like, a, it's just obvious mixed with the fact that there's a lot of uh, support that backs up the claim of, of such as uh, those things. So uh, has, so what is a common use for, urban computing to detect air quality or to even really uh, document or generate data in regards to the air quality. I know that there are instances in which um, there are vehicular-based approaches for measuring this. Uh, do, you know, are, are, are there any other ways, are there any other approaches that are uh, known to you or is that the general way to go about 
detecting the air quality in a given area? And also, how common was this in the field, or did it come by way of a different interdisciplinary need? Yeah, I mean, uh, in this in this case, urban computing kind of like takes a different a different meaning or a different use, uh, and the the urban computing system is more managing uh, actual samples that can be taken either by cell phones or or monitoring stations uh, that are dispersed around space. The the condition or or what's important here, uh, at least in terms of the, um, the computational management system, is that uh, these sample locations are discrete points in space, right? So we don't have a, well, if you were to have a, a cell phones or, or smaller scale, scale sensors on, on present, more ubiquitously, uh, it'd be easier to get a more granular representation of of what air quality might be. Uh, but in general, this uh, this sampling stations uh, or monitoring stations are located uh, not very continu- contiguously. So what uh, what people or scholars trying to measure this this type of of, uh, of information do is basically interpolate the values uh, of of samples around an area. So say we have a we have point A and point B uh, that are like a few blocks apart from each other. Uh, what you can use the the computational system is to generate all the values in between. And of course, this is this is an approximation and a, and a prediction uh, of what the values might be. Rather, and uh, and this is a very interesting problem that has been in the minds of uh, people dealing and developing the systems from very early on. So, one of the first uh, of the first uh, systems for for representing data, uh, spatial data digitally, SIMAP, uh, that was created at the Laboratory for Computer Graphics, uh, developed a, a number of of, uh, of studies of air quality in the in Los Angeles, and what they were doing was uh, developing algorithms for spatial interpolation. And what they realized was that because all their their sampling stations were far apart from each other, uh, all all the the predictions or the spatial interpolations that they were getting uh, were not that accurate. And they realized that because they were modeling uh, this distribution of, of values across the city in a in a linear manner, uh, and they were not taking into account other geographic features, like for example, uh, amount of range that might heavily affect how pollution is distributed uh, across across the city. Uh, so those those are kind of like, uh, some problems and, and nuances that. That we ought to be aware uh, when interpolating or predicting uh, spatial information. So one thing I've always wanted to know is what is noise pollution? Because it sounds like a band name. Uh, what is noise pollution? Well, yeah, well, well, I, I kind of know what it is, but I don't know like a very simple way to explain it to people or present it to people. People can can again, classify uh, what noise pollution might be. 
I'm not really aware of the thresholds, but people have usually done this type of studies by measuring how much noise and how high the levels of noise might be around an area. I'm not familiar with the specific thresholds, uh, but in general, it deals with uh, with how loud or not an area might be uh, in general. I'm glad that you were able to tell me uh, overall that... Um, so noise pollution is essentially just measuring the amount of the, is it just volume or is there any other sort of metric that goes into noise pollution i mean what what i've seen in the past is uh is uh how the aggregated volume or how loud uh an area might be and of course this this doesn't necessarily take into consideration uh spikes or or events that might not happen generally it's just a uh, uh a a generalization for uh, an average. Are there any sort of location-based uh, apps that are helpful to urban computing, uh, knowingly or unknowingly? Yeah, I mean, uh, nowadays our cell phones, our digital devices are consistently tracking us around space. Uh, so, for example, the, the the driving directions and driving times in Google are, uh, are computed based on, on how many cell phones might be around an area. And, uh, and what's funny about, about this infrastructures and this assumptions built into the systems is that, uh, that they can be very much wrong in, in, uh, in many instances. So for example, I'm from Mexico City originally, and uh, uh, usually in Mexico City you can, you can run into, into big uh, agglomerations of people that are like waiting at a taco stand or whatever. And Google interprets this as uh, as being like a high uh, instance of traffic uh, when people are just buying a taco or whatever. Uh, but yeah, uh, companies, uh, private institutions are consistently tracking information. Uh, my experience is that uh, that they have so much information that they don't necessarily know what to do with it. In uh, in many instances. So we've been approached by uh, by energy companies, uh, got a lot of data, but don't really know what to do with it, or uh, or what the the potential uses or benefits or or drawbacks of their data might be. Uh, in general, uh, information, despite what what people might think, uh, it's highly unstructured and it's uh, and it's highly noisy. Uh, but because there's a lot of it, uh, a lot of, of, of things can be inferred uh, from it. So uh, travel times, uh, what can be your next location in space, etc. And a lot of a lot of those uh, uses can seem very creepy, and and that's why uh, creepy or even dangerous uh, behaviors. Uh, so that's why uh, kind of being transparent about. Uh, uh, the whole process is uh, is very very much important. Uh, like both in uh, the assumptions are coming into the models of your building. So what do you think of? I mean, I do want to flirt a little bit. I do have like other um, urban computing questions, such as what are voxels, and I have like an, you know I want to know what your thoughts on urbanism is, and ultimately if you've ever heard of urban exploration. But there is one thing I want to ask: is like, do you ever ponder the civil liberties? of urban computing, if that makes sense. It sounds like I'm putting in two giant concepts together, 
but but at any point do you think about uh the privacy implications that come from this uh whether it's ethical or unethical i personally find it to be uh ethically semi-neutral until it is perpetrated in some sort of ethical or unethical way um but i would love to hear your thoughts on it given your um your familiarity with the approaches but most of all your uh, overall command of the subject altogether i mean i think uh what what is more more important and more relevant in this discussion is uh well any computational system has a uh, has a number of assumptions and number of, of values embedded in it uh i think throughout history of urban computing and other types of computing too uh one of the issues has been that that uh the people or the technocrats building that technology are not necessarily aware of uh of the implications that their technology might have so for example in the 1930s uh the the housing agent housing agencies and and, and loan agencies uh were producing uh, uh, mortgage risk assessments uh, through maps, and they were using a, a bunch of methodologies, personal data coll collection assumptions, etc., about uh, what meant uh, for for an area to be good or or uh, or well received for receiving a, a loan, etc. And ultimately, all, all these maps and all these uh, assessments were were very much reflected the the, the racial and other social uh, conceptions that people had at the time. Uh, but ultimately, also the people producing this assessments were not necessarily aware of their behaviors or coming up with a with a more objective system. For assessing a mortgage and uh, and credit risk, so they they thought they were they were they were kind of doing well uh, to a larger population, and and kind of like the same sort of like a like parallel can be made with uh, with current technologies. A lot of a lot of the the position tracking mapping services are are developed uh, not by planners or people some critical thinking about uh, urban space and the implications of urban space and competing with space. There are more technical, technically oriented people, computer scientists. And, uh, and nowadays, uh, here at MIT and other institutions are the, the education of the, the computer scientist and the engineer is incorporating more and more uh, critical issues about data Algorithmic complexity, etc., uh, which I think it's it's very much important and relevant uh, to the discussion, and to start embedding some of that thought into into the tools that uh, that we use on our on our daily life. Is that similar? Be it, like, let's say, uh, have they been considering its use in say like housing, public safety? Um, I know the economy is a big one. Uh, but ultimately, what have like in in your idea and in, in when it comes to the uh, in, in in academia towards urban computing in that department, in terms of 
wanting to include in its curriculum factors of critical importance. I mentioned earlier housing and public safety. Are there other places of critical importance where they're starting to consider how to apply uh, urban computing models? Yeah, smaller city planning departments are are introducing this type of tools. Uh, a few uh, a year ago or so, working with the with the uh, metropolitan planning agency here in Boston, we were going uh, trying to collect. Uh, or crowdsource statistics, housing statistics, uh, housing prices, uh, etc. And hopefully, all this more granular information can help us understand uh, how people are uh, are actually engaging with the city, both at, a, at an economic uh, level and on a on a daily life. Uh, and my hope is that uh, that this tools rather than becoming prescriptive generalizations of what ought to happen uh, to fulfill a a computational simulation. Uh, My hope is that these tools can rather engage directly with with citizens uh, to pursue more equitable cities and equitable spaces. We're uh, we're almost about the time where we'd be wrapping up. However, I have a few more questions and they're a little less, uh, one last urban computing question. And then uh, as I, I, you know, I've hyped this up, you know, uh, what are voxels? Is that how they're even pronounced? V-O-X-E-L-S? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So So what are they? What are those? Yeah, yeah. So voxels is a, well, it's a a broadly used uh, computer graphics data structure that I, thought would be a good representation of a set of urban conditions. So a voxel is, is basically a three-dimensional pixel. So an image, any picture, whatever, it's a, it's a set of, of pixels uh, that have a location in, in space. Uh, generally, a picture located in, a, in absolute space, so it starts in point zero zero. Whereas uh, a spatial voxel uh, is referenced to a given given point in the world, and it's also three dimensional. So you can think of, of a voxel as a as a set of spatial layers that contain information about the world, like for example the ages of, of uh, people uh, living in a given area, the income of people in a given area, the amount of pollution of, of a given area, etc. And they are layered on top of each other. So you can think of it as a as some sort of like sandwich or a spatial sandwich, where the bread of uh, of of your voxel is, uh, for example, income information of Somerville. Uh, the cheese of your of your sandwich is, uh, I don't know, the amount of, of uh, noise pollution in Somerville, etc. And you can layer as, as many as many different spatial conditions on top of each other, and because voxels are uh, are very computationally inexpensive you can transform them and, uh, and query them uh, pretty easily uh, creating an, an iterative interface so you're modifying them and querying them so subsetting say only give me the areas that have a, a more uh, noise pollution than X amount uh, so you create this query send this query and it instantly uh, can return the information, so it's kind of like iterative. Uh, so it's basically just a, a data structure that presents uh, information in three dimensions. So, what is urbanism? I've read it. I've, I when I was in uh, 
through my undergraduate experience uh, a lot of my expository writing we had to explore urban structures the built environment and it, it was very it, it made a good impression on me but I like to know what to you is urbanism yeah so I mean uh, the broader conception of, of urbanism is kind of this idea of, of studying how uh, how urban morphology affects uh, social life right so and there, there have been like many many attempts to characterize this either through a, a non-quantitative um, measurements and quantitative measurements at the same time so like from networks etc to other types of uh, theorists like uh, Jane Jacobs that uh, that talked about uh, urban lives in cities uh, how do the neighborhood our neighborhoods uh, characterized and, and brought to life by local interactions with residents uh, or between residents. And that's kind of what, what actually interests me, uh, the locality and the, and the contextual uh, specificity of, uh, of places and, uh, and how that creates uh, a set of uh, social structures and social life around it. Uh, other people have tried to do uh, more quantitative type of measurements uh, or doing the study at the scale of, of the person. Okay. Uh, finally, have you ever heard of urban exploration? And if you haven't, uh, I would love to explain it to you, but have you? Uh, I mean, not really, I, but I can imagine uh, people like to go on serendipitous uh, walks or, or uh, yeah. Yeah, I, I remember when I was a kid, I used to just, to, I mean, there were, I mean, there was this ridiculous uh, spin that we had in our mind. It was very anarchistic, where we viewed uh, some abandoned municipal buildings as like you're, uh, as if we were positively occupying them because they were already light or ill-attended. Um, but I think that there are like adults who will, you know, basically as, as it states, they would, and, and it's all over the internet as like a, as a fascinating corner of the internet where they go about, they more or less break and enter. Um, and they take photos of these abandoned building structures. Uh, it's very popular like in European cities where you have these ultra historical buildings. Um, but given the concept of the idea of being that committed to pursuing a curiosity, but what is your thought on what would want to make a person do that? Is it just curiosity? Is it adventure? Or is there like, or, or are we naturally drawn to explore building structures abandoned or not yeah i mean i think in 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 general uh human beings are are drawn to exploration uh and i guess the current technologies in a way sort of like limit that capacity of or that that need for exploration because instead of, of Finding your way and uh, and your own personal conception of uh, of uh, what the space around you is, 
we, on our day-to-day life, try to optimize the city. So we're look, always looking for, for the shortest for the shortest path or, or, or most efficient way to, to transit around cities. But on the other hand, uh, communities, uh, social communities, either on the web or, or not, like those that you that you mentioned, uh, are kind of interesting cases that uh, that introduce some type of behavior or put out there some idea that then gets uh, reappropriated by uh, by people. So, like uh, I don't know, for example, I a couple of years ago uh, when people were all crazy about playing Pokemon Go or whatever the name of that that game was, uh, you could see like people just walking around the city. Uh, with a phone in their hands, and I bet that the creators of this game had like no idea of technology was going to have on people. So in a sense, technology affects us, and we affect it in unexpected ways that oftentimes, oftentimes also leads us to uh, to this kind of serendipitous urban encounters. I guess short answer is I think uh, human beings are are currently drawn to exploration, uh, whether that's urban, the mountains, etc. And uh, and sometimes technology limits that or uh, provides new opportunities for it too. Carlos, I want to thank you so much for uh, taking the time to talk to me before the end of the new year. Uh, everyone, uh, please check out... Um, I mean, Carlos, where can people reach you? I know that we have your email, uh, C sandova at mit.edu um is it sandova or sandoval at mit.edu uh, it's it's a uh, it's sandova without the l okay uh, there's I, kind of like a limited character so you can use uh on mit emails <laughs> awesome so, so yeah, yeah so so c so c sandova without the l yep. at mit.edu exactly. Uh, our guest was Carlos Sandoval um, Olascoaga, and we thank him for taking the time to visit the Guaucast before the new year. Uh, thank you so much, and I hope we can talk again soon. Yeah, and thanks so much for inviting me. This was uh, a lot of fun. This episode was recorded at Boston Free Radio at the Somerville Media Center at Union Square. If you'd like to hear the hip-hop music that we're playing on our program, tune in on Boston Free Radio, Saturdays from 3 p.m. to 4 p.m. You can listen to the music live on Boston Free Radio. If you are unable to do so, don't fret. We have our Spotify playlist shown early on our Patreon. Patreon.com slash GSHamlin for your Guaucast needs. Come on in and check out our Patreon. <laughs>